Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and we're joined once again by guest host Anthony Fisher. Anthony, welcome back for your final episode. Thanks. Hopefully it's not final forever, but for this run, it's been... (laughs) Well, we'll see how you you behave. (laughs) Hope I pass Um... the audition. (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, Anthony, you probably saw it. A little bit of news may have gone under your radar here, but the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. What do you make of this? Well, I make that everybody's jumping to too many conclusions at once. So that's what that's the one. I'm smart enough to know that I don't know enough. Certainly, we've now, no matter what happens with this investigation, this is going to be litigated throughout the 2024 election. I think that's a certainty. And as far as who approved the warrant, what it was specifically for, what the scope of the investigation is, I don't know. I mean, can't wait to find out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're talking about this roughly 24 hours after it happened. There may be some more developments by the time the podcast comes out, or there may we may not hear about this for another couple months. So instead, I think it, it can be helpful to focus on the right's reaction to the FBI raid. First of all, one thing that struck me, little joke, is when I first heard that the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, it was like, well, maybe it's not Trump, right? Because there was that woman who was the Chinese woman who maybe had some intelligence connections who was hanging out around Mar-a-Lago a few years ago. And it made me think, how many guys, how many members at Mar-a-Lago do you think potentially could be raided by the FBI? And, like, guys just in polo shirts who see the FBI windbreakers coming, and they're like, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then they walk by them, and it's like a big, like, puff of air comes out, and they're like, all right, all right, Ray, we live to run the car dealership another day. That said, I watched a couple hours of Fox News last night because I was trying to get some reaction. I got to say, Fox kind of in the August doldrums. Tucker was out. He had some guest hosts. And one thing that struck me was how many guys who were also under investigation for January 6th related matters were guests on it. And so they had Steve Bannon on, who said, hey, look Trump alone. And they had Jeffrey Clark, the former Justice Department official who memorably got frisked by the FBI in like a strip mall parking lot a few weeks back and they took his cell phone. So the overall message here, as you can imagine, is that this raid is completely unfair, completely unconstitutional. The phrase that they kept coming back to was banana republic. This idea that Biden has the FBI kind of reaving the land, picking up MAGA supporters. Anthony, what are some other things you noticed in the reaction? Well, it's also funny that I just edited a piece by Michael Cohen that's on the Daily Beast website right now. 
now titled The GOP's Response to the FBI Searching Trump's Home, Destroy Faith in the Rule of Law. In this, he catalogs not just MAGA shit posters online, but also prominent conservative commentators like Glenn Beck, who called for the fumigating of the FBI. What do you fumigate, right? Insects. Let's jump off of that because these sort of attacks on the Justice Department and the FBI, this is like obviously something we've seen going back to 2016 from Trump people, the Russian investigation. Then obviously another big one was the prosecution of January 6th rioters. And now this. And so I'm going to lay my marker down. I think the next time Republicans have unified control of the government, the FBI and the Justice Department are going to be no more. They're going to be reconstituted under a different name. Like someone like Jim Jordan's going to be put in charge. You think of Axios, Jonathan Swan had some reporting on all their plans to sort of gut the civil service. And I think the FBI is going to be number one to be just ripped apart to shreds and reconstituted, presumably as some much more politically focused agency. I just think with Republicans, I think they've had a lot of bad faith attacks on the FBI and the DOJ. And I think that basically it's going to be politically untenable once they control the government again for them not to just really rip the guts out. It's terrifying. I mean, we've seen the plans in place. And again, it's not just commentators, but it's prominent senators like Rubio and Cruz that are, Rubio just called it a third world Marxist dictatorship move. And Cruz said that the DOJ and the FBI have weaponized to target their political enemies. The idea that federal law enforcement could be gutted <laughs> and that one of the parties is, is basically telling you that they're going to do this, that this is now the hill they're going to die on. That's the banana republic kind of stuff. It kind of reminds me of how Trump leading up to the 2020 election basically said, I'm hearing things about election fraud and told us the whole time what he was going to do and then did it. And what happened was terrible. So I don't think it can be overstated how dangerous this could get. That sort of leads into, is it civil war time? I don't think so. But we're seeing a lot of language. I think this has really kind of revved up a lot of stuff, whether it's on forums like the forum once known as the Donald. And then from some conservative commenters as well, that it's like, it's war. Oh, this is war. Oh, Merrick Garland is pushing us towards a civil war. The one thing I wanted to highlight is, here's a quote from Stephen Crowder from last night, the night of the raid. Tomorrow is war. Sleep well. I feel like I got a lot of stuff that was like, go to bed, my my sweets. Tomorrow it's war time. If you recall, like, just real quick, like, Andrew Breitbart's been dead for 10 years now, but that was his rally cry. When he would make those videos, he would end it with war. And his fans would hashtag with war. Like you, I too don't believe that there will be a blue-gray type civil war in this country. But the the schisms about politics and reality and the rule of law, I think, are already happening. Right. I mean, that's where we're going to take this is these guys love war and they love talking about like they love that word specifically war. And that's because of Andrew Breitbart. And so Andrew Breitbart, for folks who don't remember, who died back in 2012, his thing was saying insanely obvious things. And then they became like these treasured chestnuts of the conservative movement that they tote around and mention in every speech. And so the other obvious example here is politics is downstream of culture. And if I could tell you folks how many times I've read in a column, how many times I have heard in a speech that like kind of meaningless line, and then they kind of ruminate on it. The other example here, not Andrew Breitbart, that line kind of competes with Benjamin Franklin, a republic, if you can keep it, for like the just every single time people tote it out. And it's like, yeah, we all heard it. I know. <laughs> Nevertheless, the other one big one, as you mentioned, is war. And so they'll say like war and then attribute it like a quote to Andrew Breitbart. But folks, it's just a word. I was thinking about this today it's like tree will summer <laughs> that's your bold environmental statement isn't it <laughs> they just love it and they love that big andrew breitbart big old blockhead and i can say that as a big headed guy myself 
And they love his gif of him just being like, war. And then what happens? I mean, I mean, for people feeling like a little concerned that he's going to set off a civil war or whatever. I mean, I don't know. They already tried to overthrow the government. I feel like the ship maybe has sailed in terms of things falling apart. But these guys also love to love to be like, look what you made me do. You know, now we have to do a civil war because you raided Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. It also harkens back to the fake news thing, which you could argue was started by Hillary Clinton late in the 2016 election, like making fake news as a phrase, a thing. And then almost immediately with whiplash speed, Trump and the right took over the fake news thing, calling everything fake news, which continues to this day and probably forever. Like it's, it's definitely much more associated with the right. That's kind of like what reminds me about what's happening right now, which is that the right is screaming about the politicization of federal law enforcement. And they're calling for the, as a response to politicize the rule of law themselves, to completely put partisans and loyal party hacks in positions of prosecutorial power. So when you've got two sets of rules of law, that is kind of civil war-y, right? <laughs> We're like living in two different countries, no? I think it's a good point on how these sort of I think unfair perceptions on their part that the Justice Department is being used to basically terrorize Biden's enemies, what they call the dark Brandon movement, that then you can kind of like you take that and then they can flip it around and they're like, well, then we're justified to really do it. I think that's sort of a part of the larger what we talk about on the new right as the new right, this idea of like, now we're really going to be bad and evil and we're going to show you what's what. And so I think it comes to justify a lot of genuine like political repression that may be in the offing. And people are open about this, right? I mean, this is kind of like also like the Victor Orbanization of the American right, this idea that like, when we get the institutions, we're really going to terrorize our enemies. So unfortunately, I think there's more to come. However, there's one more thing I wanted to flag here, which is this comes up a lot, this line from uh, the political scientist Frank Wilhoy. But he says, conservatism consists of exactly one proposition. There must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. And I feel like that's really appropriate here in the reaction to this raid. Every time the FBI arrests a Trump ally, or maybe a January 6th person, there's this idea that's like, hold up, that's what prisons are for? For me? Like, this isn't fair. So in the way that Trump was like, they didn't even announce this raid. And they opened my safe, the <laughs> place where I keep my most secret things The FBI might be interested in. And I think certainly from the kind of the, the pundit point of view in these kind of bad faith ways where they just like, well, like the law is being enforced. This has never happened before. Everything's got to be like a top down conspiracy theory. And so as I'm sure you've seen, like, I think Eric Trump insinuated that Joe Biden himself was responsible for the raid, that like that that's how this works, that a president green lights an FBI raid. He says no more malarkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, classic throwback to the 22 VP debate, Malarkey. But Biden's having a very rare in his presidency, a good week. <laughs> Biden's had like political successes. The idea that he would want to like throw out that bit of the news cycle and intentionally incite accusations that he's going after a former president for political purposes is just doesn't make any sense from political analysis point of view. But it does continue to feed this narrative that the deep state is in charge, that they installed Joe Biden, that he wasn't legitimately elected, and now he's doing their will. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing more of this to come. It's very intriguing. And I think we're sort of in a phase where like the lines weren't quite figured out. The talking points were like a little loose, I felt. It was like a little reactive, but I'm sure there's more to come. I mean, they're going to find, I think the Russian investigation, the reaction to it made clear that like there will be a counter narrative that's built. They're going to find their equivalent of the new FBI lovebirds or whatever who are on this raid. And then you can kind of build a, a whole flourishing right wing ecosystem to d- distract people from the actual investigation. Anthony, they say small minds discuss people 
Average minds discuss events, and great minds discuss ideas. But I might add a corollary to that. The greatest minds discuss concepts. We're here today to discuss Conceptual James, one of the greatest right-wingers out there, one of the greatest, greatest players, the king of concepts himself, and unfortunately, he's fallen on the online battlefield. What is going on? Who is James Lindsay? Why does he love concepts so much, and what has become of him? Yeah, well, I mean, in the Brooklyn mafiosi scene, they call him Jimmy the Concept, but... <laughs> James Lindsay is, like Jordan Peterson discussed a couple of weeks ago in this podcast, a intellectual dark web type figure who came to fame as a self-described left-leaning liberal who was merely exposing anti-woke corruption in academia. That was a few years ago, but he was promoted by people like Barry Weiss and Steven Pinker and all the leading lights of the intellectual dark web, been on Joe Rogan's show many times, including in this calendar year when he has already become quite deranged. And he was permanently banned from Twitter late last week over repeated transphobic commentary, I guess is the word. He's just like a, the best way to describe him is he's a, he's just a straight up shit posting bully who has increasingly shown his fascistic tendencies, but is a very influential person on the anti-woke right and center who has been instrumental in drumming up both the critical race theory moral panic and the quote-unquote groomer moral panic. He's the one that popularized the OK Groomer hashtag. And it's only because he's a little rougher around the edges that he's not as mainstream as Christopher Rufo, but they are peas in a pods, they're allies. And upon his banning from Twitter, Rufo tweeted that this was an outrageous act of censorship. And I should point out the irony that these are both people who call for speech bans, <laughs> who call for book bannings, who calls for ideas to not be discussed, who call for people to be fired for having bad politics. So I've got a piece up in the Daily Beast today that is titled, The Banned OK Groomer Guy, James Lindsay, is not a free speech martyr. And that's basically the take is that however however you feel about his hypocrisy and his supporters' hypocrisy posing as free speech advocates, quote-unquote liberals, who are just into having difficult discussions and are fighting a back against the regressive left, that's all bullshit, as we know. But why this is truly not a free speech controversy is because Twitter itself was exercising its right of free association to kick him away from their table. He was an annoying gnat. He made the experience unpleasant. He violated their terms of service repeatedly, knowingly, and got away with it hundreds and hundreds of times. I will say that. Twitter was really late to pull the trigger on this one. And even though I'm a free speech advocate myself, I take no great delight in Twitter bans in general. It's a discussion for another time. Twitter was exercising its right of free speech in the marketplace of ideas. And that's why this is Jim James Lindsay is not a free speech martyr. I think that's a great point. I think what's important to situate James Lindsay, as you have here, is that along with Christopher Rufo, these are the guys who like are responsible for a lot of the sort of language jujitsu we've seen over maybe the past year and a half. Usually they call their shot kind of like Babe Ruth pointing to the bleachers. And they say they'll tweet something like, time to rebrand the federal income tax as financial terrorism. Everyone, just start calling it financial terrorism. And then when people say it's just taxes, say, oh, you're a terrorist. They do stuff like that. And so in this case, they said time to rebrand. I believe I'm essentially quoting Christopher Rufo here instead of conceptual James. But the gist is they say instead of talking about like race in schools, we're going to call it critical race theory. And instead of saying just talking openly about LGBT issues in schools, we're going to say anyone who does that is a pedophile. And then we'll just say, oh, you're a groom 
rumor to anyone who disagrees with us. And so, I mean, they're really obvious about it, and yet they gain some traction. But ultimately, it's interesting that Conceptual James came up with the groomer thing, because ultimately that, I believe, was what did him in. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, he, again, he tweeted that groomer thing thousands of times. It was, I don't know exactly why. I reached out to Twitter for comment. I don't know exactly why this is the one that did him in. But you said that it got them some traction. I think it did a lot more than that. I mean, like, Ron DeSantis's press secretary uses groomer now and accused anyone of opposing the so-called don't say gay law in Florida of grooming. Trump, obviously, the ecosystem in which James Lindsay runs, those messages get to Trump. Like, and he adjusts on the fly. Very recently was talking about Marxist communist groomer teachers at a recent rally. Again, going back to a recent episode of Fever Dreams, the now far-right Libertarian Party tweeted in support of James Lindsay's admiration of Senator Joseph McCarthy, as in McCarthyism, as in the Red Scare, as in the witch hunts, which are repudiated by everybody, supposedly until recently, I guess, including the right. And the Libertarian Party is, quoting James Lindsay, saying that McCarthy was wrong, he underestimated the communist threat in America. The Libertarian Party, if it stood for anything, used to be, till a couple of weeks ago, free speech, that you don't censor your political enemies. To tweet in support of McCarthyism, it's heartbreaking and it boggles the mind. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting grace note to sort of what we discussed about the Libertarians, because people might think of the Libertarian Party, I certainly would, as sort of like, hey man, pass the bong, or like, hey man, pass the blockchain, something like that, right? These guys. But now, they're tweeting, oh, in honor of Conceptual James, oh, deceased, we miss you, man. The Red Scare didn't go far enough. Like, who are these guys? What effect has Conceptual James wrought on our Libertarians? Yeah, there's a few things that we kind of all agree on at this point that were once culture war touchstones, like the Vietnam War and McCarthyism. I think everybody sort of agreed these were bad. These were mistakes. These should not be repeated. We should learn the lessons of history. As you know very well, the culture of online political trolling is wrought with irony. You're not quite sure like if this is trolling or not. I don't really think it is at this point. I think that like it's just pretty much explicit culture war all day. But like you said, the libertarians kind of were sort of harmless and pushing certain issues to the forefront that would maybe later get addressed by the major parties. Now it's just straight up right wing culture war trolling. So Anthony, on the topic of conceptual James, where do you think conceptual James goes from here and what will become of his ideas? Well, the thing about conceptual James, like quite a few of the right wing culture war trolls who hate Twitter, who beg Elon Musk to buy Twitter and not have no content moderation. These people, their biggest platform is Twitter. <laughs> like this is where they get the most attention. James Lindsay's not Joe Rogan, where every single episode is going to get millions of streams and downloads. His YouTube channel isn't so popular that he can just exist off of Twitter's platform. And, and even someone like Alex Jones, who's been banned from basically every social media platform and YouTube, his infrastructure is already so well built that he can sustain himself even not being projected to the mainstream. As far as conceptual James's brand without Twitter, I don't know. I don't know where he goes. Ideas might be a bit of a... <laughs> might be giving a little more credit than he deserves. But unfortunately, those ideas are like... They are ideas and they're in the political firmament now. Laws are being made. We used to talk about like talk radio and Fox News as being the, the source of much right-wing conspiracy theory brain worms. But we're so beyond that now. Those things still exist and they still are plenty influential. But online culture, message board culture, Conceptual James and Chris Rufo, they made their message heard, not through op-eds or YouTube channels, but on Twitter. And even with Conceptual James gone, the, the whole groomer thing, the whole critical race theory thing, again, these are laws. <laughs> They'll survive him. To bat them back is going to take years. All right. Well, the 21-gun salute to Conceptual 
conceptual James and his concepts. We will never see your likes again. So who's our guest this week, Will? All right. Well, put on your sheriff's badge, because this week we've got Jessica Pichko. She's a reporter who's contributed to outlets like The Appeal, The Atlantic, and The Nation. We're having her on this week because her specialty is the relatively lawless world of the county sheriff. Kind of a fascinating place, because basically in a lot of these states, sheriffs are, are laws under themselves. They can only be ousted through election, typically, and people don't really pay attention to who their sheriff is or what their clearance rate is. And so she, she explores both sheriffs as kind of just crummy law enforcement and sometimes tyrannical law enforcement, but also sheriffs have, in the past few years, or in a way, I guess going back decades, have been sort of at the vanguard of a lot of extremist right-wing movements. More recently, they've been one part of the spear of the allegations of voter fraud movement. And I'm looking forward to getting into that. Jessica is also drawing a book about sheriffs called The Highest Law on the Land. And she has a substack about sheriffs called Posse Comitatus. And that's sheriffs.substack.com. So like I said, I mean, I think sheriffs have been getting up to a lot of no good. I'm interested to hear about it from Jessica. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right. This week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Jessica Pishko. She's a reporter who's written for a lot of outlets, including The Atlantic and The Nation. And she's also an expert on sheriffs. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. So, Jessica, you've written a lot about the ill deeds of sheriffs, both political and otherwise. What is it that makes the position of sheriff so unique to corruption and abuse? So I think that one of the things to understand about sheriffs is that they have evolved into a position that's part politician and part police, right? So in most places, we have what you might call a police force. This is what most probably people listening are familiar with. You have a police chief that is in some way appointed by a city council or maybe county council, depending on where you live. And so uniquely, the sheriff is elected, just like district attorneys are elected. But unlike district attorneys, sheriffs, one, don't have required certification. So there's no sort of national standard for which sheriffs must meet. District attorneys do have to go to law school, at least. And two, they run political campaigns that very much veer to the right, usually of their constituents. So because more people live in cities, less people live outside of cities in kind of rural and exurban areas. But those are the places most policed by sheriffs. So if you are familiar with your sheriff, you are more than likely more conservative, probably whiter, and you probably live in a rural or exurban area. And therefore, you might have interests that are at odds with folks that are living in urban areas or who are not able to vote. 
just to sort of also put that out there that a lot of voter exclusion, things that make it impossible for people who are criminal records to vote. Those are the sorts of things that also get in the way of electing a sheriff who's accountable. In addition to elections, the other issue is that sheriffs have sort of avoided accountability. So there are very few regulations that control sheriffs. Nothing can be done on the federal level. And states have generally been very reluctant to do anything to control sheriffs who are on the county level. It's very interesting. You talk about sheriffs acting with impunity. And obviously, potentially they could lose election, but who follows closely what their sheriff is up to unless it's just a massive scandal. You've written about the sheriff in North Carolina who was caught on tape trying to hire a hitman. And then when the city council or the county council tried to get rid of him, they were like, actually, we're not quite sure we can. Right. I mean, the thing is that a lot of these laws, so because the sheriff is old, like many positions, it's been created by state constitutions, many of which date back to the nation's founding. And so at the nation's founding, they didn't have the police state that we have now. Most sheriffs at that time were largely tax collectors. They might collect voting ballots, and some of them would occasionally assist with catching like fugitives or maybe run a small jail. But we didn't have the police apparatus we have now. So what tends to happen is when a scandal does come to light and people try to take action, the laws are so very old that they're not quite sure what they're supposed to do. And so in that particular county, what happened was they had never removed a sheriff. So they simply didn't have a modern procedure in place to take care of it. So talk to me about, you mentioned the sheriffs, they have this role of law enforcement, but they also have this politician role. And I think we're familiar with the rise of these sort of celebrity sheriff with Joe Arpaio being the most obvious example. Why do sheriffs love publicity so much? And what sort of bad things will they do to get it? Yeah, so I think the other interesting thing about sheriffs is for a long time, they have been celebrities. So we are kind of familiar with sheriffs like Joe Arpaio, or I think some people have now seen Richard Mack in the news. David Clark is another one who keeps reappearing Mm -hmm. in the news. (laughs) And what's interesting about it is when I went back and kind of looked at history, it's that sheriffs for a long time have long attracted a sort of celebrity status. Some of that, I think, is unique among kind of the idea of the American West. So when the American West was colonized by white people, sheriffs were more important than other law enforcement simply because there was no other law enforcement out there. And so they kind of enjoy this sort of quasi-outlaw status, sort of people think of things like Wyatt Earp. If you've watched Deadwood, that's a sheriff. So people sort of got this like romantic vision of sheriffs. And then we had movies like John Wayne movies. And so I think the idea of the sheriff has always been both romanticized and sort of essentialized in American history. And so when you look at American culture now, it kind of makes sense that sheriffs take this quasi celebrity cultural view I often liken them to influencers now. So like, right? so like some of them have very large social media followings. Like their videos are very popular. Who are, who are the celebrity sheriffs? Yeah. The celebrity sheriffs. So I was just thinking there's a sheriff in Florida whose name is Grady Judd. He's a sheriff at Polk County. People might be f- vaguely familiar with him because he appears quite a lot with Ron DeSantis to sort of amplify some of Ron DeSantis's messaging this anti-protest, anti-immigrant messaging. 
And he has a pretty large Facebook and Instagram following. Does a lot of press conferences where he makes fun of people he arrests. So he'll do kind of like a large arrest and then do a press conference where he makes fun of the people. He does little comics of people he's arresting. So like he sort of will have someone illustrate like a joke about the people they arrest and like make fun of how dumb they are. Like getting like a little like Ziggy cartoon? Yeah, it's sort of like a little like Calvin and Hobbes style like cartoon about they arrested this person and what they did was so silly and sort of I think playing off that like Florida man trope. And he has actually like a really wide following outside of Florida. I mean, I was in an airport in Arizona and someone was watching Rady Judd videos. Another sheriff that has celebrity status that I have written a lot about is a sheriff in Arizona named Mark Lamb. And he is a newer sheriff. He was on Live PD. So he came sort of rose through the Live PD universe. He's now tours with Trump. He introduces Trump and various other far-right figures. So as time has gone on, he's drifted further to the right. So he now is with Michael Flynn and, and that crew. So he's sort of like their token sheriff to kind of get the crowd riled up. And I mean, it is true when you have a Trump rally, if you think about the folks that appear at Trump rallies, Sheriff Lamb is tall. He wears a cowboy hat. I mean, he looks like a sheriff as I joke. So like when he appears on stage, like people are instantly much more interested in him than they might be in like Mike Lindell, who is not, I'm not sure if you've seen Mike Lindell speak, but he's not like terribly, he's neither terribly attractive or charismatic. And you have these folks appear and then you have someone like Mark Lamb appear who is much younger. He's like in his fifties, I guess early fifties, right? Like he looks a lot more like a celebrity than some of these other people. So I do think there's like this Instagrammable quality that Briggs sheriffs to the fore that people could see and recognize as like a American figure that is something to pay attention to. Jessica, I have a question since we're talking about the online celebrity of a lot of these sheriffs, since they're drawing such big audiences, there's bound to be some of these feedback loops. Have you been seeing sheriffs getting into, say, pushing the big lie or threatening to take law enforcement action if they come across election fraud? I'm just curious if those kind of threats are percolating down to the sheriff level. Yes. So I think a lot has appeared in the news lately about this because they all went officially on these programs. So two groups of sheriffs have officially joined with True the Vote to as they say, quote, investigate elections. Now, I actually saw this about a year ago. I was at a constitutional sheriff training, which is run by Richard Mack. So just sort of set the stage. The Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officer Association is a far-right group. Easiest to think of it as an offshoot of the Oath Keepers. They started, what in essence happened was that Stuart Rhodes founded the Oath Keepers, wanted an organization that would recruit law enforcement people into the sort of Oath Keepers. So he asked Richard Mack, who was once a sheriff in rural Arizona. He was a sheriff in the 80s and early 90s, so pretty long time ago. I mean, he asked Richard Mack to move to Texas and start this group, which he did. And so they are sort of a collection of sheriffs, sheriff wannabes, random officers. They let anybody join. But they started pushing some big lie stuff kind of in 2020, 2021, so right away. 
So it wasn't terribly surprising to me when they began to announce that they were officially investigating, quote unquote, election fraud. One of the sheriffs who have done so, there's a sheriff in Michigan. His name is Sheriff Darleaf. He began investigating, quote unquote, fraud a long time ago. He got a bunch of money and funding from Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, and started to go around. He's in Michigan. So he started going around rural Michigan harassing these election coordinators, right? So you sort of have this, people now are more aware, right? But you have a person who basically is in charge of elections and they're usually like a lifetime civil service person. So they're not like, it's not a particularly political position in general. Now, maybe it is. But at the time, it was not a political position. So you have these sort of, many of them were women in their like 50s who had been at this position a long time. And so he started going to these election coordinators and asking them for access to their voting machines. Mike Lindell has the sort of paranoid idea that the Dominion machines are in some way corrupt or something. So he started going with these machines. He wanted to seize machines. And so it was causing enough of a ruckus that his county board of supervisors started asking Darleaf what he was doing. Why was he spending all his time seizing machines from these election coordinators who were not very happy? I talked to one who was pretty annoyed because this guy came and told her she wasn't doing her job very well. And she said, like, of course I do my job well. I've been doing this job for decades. How dare you come and tell me I'm not doing my job well? He's like, you haven't even heard of Dominion. You got to get up on your Sydney Powell. You're doing an awful job. <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny, too, because it's funny in a, a sad way, because these are counties that all went for Trump. So these people there were both flummoxed and annoyed because not only were they coming asking for machines, which doesn't make sense because... As soon as elections are over, these folks are preparing for the next election, right? It's not like there's one election every four years. There's like many local elections. So they're busy doing the next election. And these were counties that had voted for Trump. So there really was no like with no issue. There's been a percolation of small things, sheriffs sort of alleging that they have been, quote, investigating. None of them have resulted in any charges. And the other group that is paired with True the Vote is Sheriff Mark Lambs. He has a sort of his own sheriff group that he calls Protect America Now. So his program is Protect America Vote. I'm trying to figure out if it's Protect America's Vote, but the website is protectamerica.vote. So I was trying to figure out like what was the proper name for it. They maybe got a little too clever with it. I think they got too clever. So I'm trying to figure it out myself. So he started a program with True the Vote and he is... They claim they're going to start a, quote, election hotline so that people can, like, call their sheriff if they think there's a problem. They're kind of doing this thing where they're suggesting that, quote, unquote, whistleblowers or snitches call the sheriff if they see something untoward. It's not clear to me what they'll do with these complaints. And again, I want to emphasize that, like, as of now, I just want people to keep in mind that none of these so-called snitches or whistleblowers have ever been substantiated. So there hasn't been any prosecution that came through a true the vote channel that was actually a case of voter fraud or irregularity. I find these sheriffs and their voter fraud hunts so fascinating. I remember maybe when they were kicking these things off, this sheriff in Wisconsin said, oh, I'm going to have a press conference and I'm going to bring charges of voter fraud. And so I thought, did he catch one of the mules? What's going on here? I was watching the press conference and then he just announced that he wanted to charge members of the Wisconsin Election Commission just for like 
changing the law to make it easier to get nursing home ballots. But it's like, well, that's kind of a, I guess, a political dis. I don't really think that's a crime per se. But I mean, it seems like these guys are willing to do that. You sort of hinted at this, Jessica, but it seems like the sheriff has a long history going back decades, the, the position of sheriff within extremist movements and as sort of the ultimate law of the land. Your substack is called Posse Comitatus, which obviously calls back to the Posse Comitatus movement. Give me the long view on the role of the sheriff in right-wing extremism in America. Yeah, so Posse Comitatus means literally power of the county. And there's sort of multiple ways it's been used, just to kind of clarify. So one way it's been used is that back in the day when sheriffs were invented, which is back in England. So they say, so they, the first mention of sheriff is in the Magna Carta. So allegedly that's when the office was created. The sheriff had what was called the hue and cry. So the essence was if the sheriff thought that something needed doing, so someone needed to be caught, they would call up all the able-bodied men in the community and they would like bring their pitchforks and guns and go chase after them. these guys love being deputized being deputized is like a big thing in the right-wing imagination people love being deputized it kind of when you think of the militia movement that's basically what it is right it's like cross cosplay cross pretending like you're chasing bad guys i mean and also to sort of it's funny but in a way like it has a terrible history so i was looking at the history in california which california was largely run by what was called vigilante justice and so vigilante justice was were vigilante committees. So the vigilance committee would meet in a bar. I mean, this was sort of what would happen. They would meet in a pub. It was basically like all the important white guys would meet in a bar and say, we think this person is stealing horses. So we're going to get all our guys and guns and go after these people. I mean, and in fact, the infamous Chinese massacre was a case where the vigilance committee got together and was like, we think something needs to be done. We're going to go after the Chinese community. What was often happened was the sheriff would be there. So the sheriff was part of the vigilance committee, but the sheriff didn't necessarily have control. So this, I think, is important to keep in mind about the militia movement. The men of the town would say, well, we're going to go after this person. And the sheriff would say something like, oh, well, okay, that seems fine. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, when faced with a group of men with guns and everybody else, the sheriff is sort of like, well, I'm going to go with what like these guys with guns are doing. They seem OK. And there is some survey research to suggest that like sheriffs are more likely to have positive views of militias. They're like OK with militias more than like general people. And this is something that happened too during in the era in which lynchings were a regular occurrence. A group of people would come to the jail and the sheriff ran the jail and they'd say to the sheriff, like, well, we're going to come into this jail. You join us or we're going to kill you. And the sheriff might be like, yeah, you know, it's cool. I'll just leave the door unlocked. It's fine. Right. So sheriffs sometimes were at the vanguard, but sometimes were also collaborating because like, why would they, I think their attitude was like, well, why would I stick my neck out for people that I don't really affiliate with? I more associate with these other people. And so as time went on, I kind of don't want to minimize the role of sheriffs in histories of racism and slavery. They were really essential to killing off Native people in the West, killing off Mexicans, murdering Black people, enslaving Black people under the 
sort of system in which they would jail people and then disappear them to work camps. So the history of convict leasing. I think all of these things that we think of, of racism and colonialism in America, sheriffs have always had this really kind of keystone role. And so I think as we look to the role of sheriffs in what we consider now the far right movement kind of extending, I would say like into the 60s to today, we don't want to, min I don't want to minimize the fact that they have always been this, right? They have always served this role. And so it's not a far stretch to understand why they're key actors. The Posse Comitatus movement that started around the 60s and 70s was started by, in essence, a group kind of a group of white supremacists. There's sort of two, two of them started around the same time. They both started around the time when schools were desegregated in the South. So after schools were desegregated, some people who were really and truly, I mean, they were really just white supremacists. There's no nicer way to call them. No way to really uh, frame that. The Posse Comitatus movement started after the desegregation of schools. So when schools began to be desegregated in the South. Some people who were white supremacists and did not want desegregation argue that the federal government was not entitled to come in and tell the states what to do. So people might remember during the civil rights movement and during many times in history, the federal government would send in the National Guard to force places to end slavery, force them to let black citizens vote, and also to desegregate schools. This made white supremacists very unhappy. So they began to argue that the county sheriff was the person who was entitled to enforce the law and that federal agents coming into counties had to get the sheriff's permission. And actually, I just saw this. So you could see this today. Someone just posted today that the FBI was not entitled to raid Mar-a-Lago without the sheriff's permission, right? So to trace that back to where it started, right, is that's where it started. It started because the federal government was the entity that was trying to force the South to desegregate. The movement kind of spread largely through the West and largely through the Pacific West. So people in Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, who were affiliated with what became the sort of Aryan nation style movements seized onto this and began to use it as justification for a lot of what they did. And from that movement, we got a lot of offshoots. So like sovereign citizen movement came from that, which was like a group of people who thought that the federal government didn't have any rights over them. The tax resistor movement, so people who didn't want to pay income tax, people who opposed FDA restrictions or land use restrictions. So this is sort of birthed, birthed the group of people who aligned with the Bundy family, who thought that the federal government didn't have a right to like regulate federal land. And so we sort of saw this like branch out into many different versions. One of the things that branched out from the Posse Comitatus movement was what we now call constitutional sheriffs or the far right sheriff move. So Richard Mack, who started the CSPOA, has always been very involved in many of these movements, kind of came from the militia movement, which first people like Timothy McVeigh. Right? So there was a group of Timothy McVeigh, anti-federal resistors that got us to far-right sheriffs today, who are sort of positioning themselves as, again, as anti-federal government and trying to assert kind of sovereign power, so arguing things like the federal government 
doesn't have the right to do X. Or we see the federal government is not enforcing immigration law. So they think that they have the right to like enforce immigration law as they see fit. And that's branched out into many other things. So I'm seeing federal government, for example, is not enforcing election law. The federal government is being too soft on the police or defunding the police. And so we need to reassert this. And I think we see that in a lot of Republican governor stances. So Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis are very much kind of taking this like state sovereign. I'm not going to do what the federal government says. Very interesting. And you really tag that whole kind of ideological history there. So Jessica, these sheriffs, they get up to, it seems like they can often do a terrible job running jails, just all these kinds of awful things. I mean, what, when you think about all the sheriffs you've reported on, what are some of the the most outrageous or bizarre things you've seen sheriffs doing? Well, I think the most frightening thing that I see is that, I mean, there's two subsets. I think one is this anti-government movement, but the other thing is honestly the impact on people in their counties. So we see jails are incredibly dangerous and run by sheriffs. We have seen them really much resisting accountability. So even as prison populations have fallen and there's a lot more police oversight, not enough police oversight, I want to add, but there is some increasing police oversight. Sheriffs have really resisted that. So at every turn, they've resisted reform. They've resisted accountability. They've not wanted to make their jails safer. And so I think that this attitude of, well, I don't have to do what sort of mainstream kind of administrative people want to do, this populism has really, I mean, it's really hurting people, right? Like people are dying in jails because they don't have access to healthcare or addiction treatment or suicide prevention. So the idea that sheriffs are just like sort of silly people saying silly things is cruel and bad, but also they are in charge of really people who need a lot of care, or if you are an immigrant, or if you are a person of color, the idea that your sheriff runs around spouting ideas that were popular among segregationists is not exactly a soothing idea. (laughs) So like, you know, it's like, well, why are these the people in charge of policing and taking care of people? This does not seem like they're like good stewards of equality. Well, I think that's a great way to close it out. Again, that's Jessica Pishko. She's working on a book called The Highest Law in the Land on sheriffs, hopefully coming soon. She writes a substack called Posse Comitatus, available at sheriffs.substack.com. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much. Okay, Fever Dreams listeners, this is it for me. This is the last segment of my stint co-hosting Fever Dreams, and that brings us to truly terrible place, fresh hell. Will, Where are we in this week's Fresh Hell? Okay, so this one, there's a lot going on in this one. And you know it's going to be a good segment when I say up top. The following are all allegations made in a legal lawsuit. Okay, (laughs) I want to stress that up top because... Take it up with the legal documents. I'm going to try to say as much as possible, allegedly. But I just want to say these are all allegations. Okay, here's the deal. James O'Keefe, the prankster prince of the right, undercover kingpin, the undercover pimp, etc. He has an organization called Project Veritas. People may know it from its sometimes successful, more oftentimes botched stings on Democrats and right-wingers James considers insufficiently conservative. But I got to say, based on this new lawsuit, Project Veritas seems like maybe not the greatest place to work. So a former administrative assistant there named Antoinetta Zappier, I think I'm pronouncing that right, longtime 
administrative assistant at Project Veritas in Mamaroneck, New York. And she has quite a tale to tell. The New York Times reported on this. And in fact, we will have a story up Wednesday getting into it. Her lawyer described it to me as Animal House and not in a fun way, (laughs) it sounds. And so she essentially was fired from Project Veritas recently. They have what I would say is kind of a curious explanation for why she was fired. They claim she like gave a rude phone call to a someone who was kind of a crank caller. I listened to the phone call and it's, it doesn't seem that rude, certainly by the standards of an organization known for its, its trollishness. However, so let's get into her allegations about what goes down at Project Veritas. So the highlight of sort of the, the reason for one of her lawsuits is that she alleges that she was sexually assaulted by kind of a high-ranking Project Veritas employee who also invited her to his house for a sexual liaison over a weekend, allegedly. So that's kind of the key core of her lawsuit. But the rest of her lawsuit gets into what is allegedly a hostile work environment and sort of a sexual harassment place or a vibe at Project Veritas that is truly crazy. And in no particular order, I'm going to run down these allegations. Okay, Project Veritas, which is a nonprofit with the IRS, allegedly rented a corporate apartment where in which they hosted drug and alcohol-fueled parties and, and also sex-fueled parties. And then she says O'Keefe occasionally participated. She doesn't make clear to what extent or maybe he was just showing up or whatever. But then the party scene came to a bit of an end when one of the undercover Project Veritas agents allegedly overdosed at the party. Unfortunately, not fatally. But I mean, this is, I will say, if I had to guess, look, James O'Keefe is a guy who recorded a very choreographed video of himself dancing, him and, and other associates, dancing to Prince's controversy. But this is a little more controversy than even I expected him to get involved in. The allegedly a Project Veritas employee, I mean, just the amount of like sex talk in Project Veritas, allegedly, James O'Keefe allegedly accidentally, he was doing a presentation with his like laptop hooked up to the screen and porn was playing in another window. And everyone's like, uh, Jay, you got some porn there. This woman claims she once walked into his office to get something and he had porn up on the TV. Just getting directly into the allegations about O'Keefe. She claims that he was like really into, he wanted everyone in the undercover group to read this book and watch the, the Jennifer Lawrence movie Red Sparrow about Russian spies, female Russian spies using their sexual wiles to seduce their targets. And that actually isn't that far off from how supposedly Project Veritas has operated. The New York Times has reported that they had sort of a honeypot house in Georgetown targeting, I believe, federal officials. But here's sort of the creme de la creme, maybe, of these allegations. Allegedly, this woman claims James O'Keefe had a party. He made her pay hundreds of dollars to buy alcohol for a party for the New York Young Republicans on a boat. And then when she showed up to clean up the boat, James's guests had pooped all over the boat. What do you make of this, Anthony? Conservatism really is the new punk rock, huh? <laughs> well, first of all, I grew up in the Hudson Valley and that this is all happening in Mamaroneck, or at least a lot of it. Obviously, the boat isn't happening in Mamaroneck in Georgetown, but Mamaroneck is a upper middle class, very quiet suburb of New York City, right near the Connecticut border. It's where doctors and lawyers and even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns accountants live. So 
wild sex and drug fueled Project Veritas apartment parties is really out of step. You'd think would be a lot more noticeable than if it were happening, say, in a Times Square apartment building or a hotel. So these are delicious details. Again, they are all allegations, though they are included in court documents. I don't really know what else to say other than these guys are letting their hair down. It takes a lot of work and discipline to put together mostly unsuccessful stings <laughs> that are often an, even an embarrassment to the right because they're, they're so overhyped and so frequently disappointing. So after a hard day of work doing that, you got to let it rip in Mamaroneck. Well, Anthony, I got a couple more allegations for you. All right. First, on the topic of James O'Keefe and women, allegedly not the classiest guy in terms of how he talks about women. It is former administrative assistant alleges that James referred to one woman as a train because of the shape of her body, complained about another's weight. Uh, talked about it and referred to another woman as Belle because she was, quote, shaped like the Liberty Bell. But actually, that's relatively nice compared to what else he allegedly did, according to this woman. She claims that he secretly recorded conversations with his then-girlfriend, a woman who, I'm not going to name her here, but she's sort of another conservative fame ball, allegedly recorded these conversations talking about their sexual activities. And then James, without this woman's permission, allegedly distributed this audio to around to his buddies. Another employee allegedly was talking about women at Project Veritas, talking about their breasts and rather explicit terms. It sounds like the description given in this lawsuit is like a pretty, I guess, a pretty crazy work environment. Yeah, I mean, but what are you signing up for when you apply for a job at Project Veritas? And Project Veritas is a, I've seen the ads. I've seen the ads when they go up on LinkedIn. Work with us, a rising media company. But the reputation precedes them. So I'm not saying that anyone deserves to be treated to a hostile work environment, but the predilection for misogyny and just kind of poor behavior is kind of baked into the brain. Right. Well, I mean, this is a guy, James O'Keefe, who and this is there's no allegedly about this once tried to sting a reporter, I believe, for CNN by inviting her onto a houseboat filled with sex toys at some sort of bizarre sting operation. That's kind of the caliber of group you're getting in with. On the other hand, you have to imagine Project Veritas is a group that receives a good amount of money from conservative donors. And I think its core function, which is getting insanely low-level members of media organizations and liberal groups to talk a little trash about their bosses or whatever, is actually not that difficult. <laughs> and so you have to imagine the donors are like, hey, uh, maybe we could get a little more videos, maybe a little less of the alleged uh, boat parties or what have you. Yeah, I mean, getting people to talk about their employers. I remember there was one that was so hype on right-wing social media, and it was basically a technical director at CNN, if I recall correctly. So someone who has no input whatsoever into the editorial content. The guy is hes a technical worker. He pushes buttons. He makes sure that the cameras are pointing in the right direction and, and the lighting is right. He's not a reporter. He's not an editor. He has nothing to do with the editorial direction of the news gathering. And yet he was drunkenly mouthing off to this person who was a Project Veritas employee who was flattering him. And he was saying things that there's no way he could have known to be true because he would not have been in these editorial meetings. The standards for Project Veritas, what they claim are big bombshells, are pretty low. To give them their side of the story, I emailed all of these allegations. I listed them out individually, sent them over to Project Veritas, and they sort of said, well, this is a disgruntled employee. We fired her for... There's kind of a bizarre incident where a Project Veritas employee was showering at her house and her husband allegedly pulled a gun out. And nevertheless, I mean, I feel like that only adds to the perhaps unhinged atmosphere there that's described within. So look, I talked to her lawyer. He said there are, frankly, like, he could have stuffed even more allegations in, but basically ran out of time. And so that he promises there is more to come. There's a couple other lawsuits Project Veritas is facing, and they always tend to be pretty interesting. And so we will certainly be keeping an eye out for more revelations from this case.
On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.